welcome to In Line With Nature, the podcast that explains an approach to building that puts the future of our planet first. With me, Hannah McInnes. In this series, I talk to experts about modern day construction, its impact on the natural world, and why the time for change is now. I'll be talking to our series of guests about new approaches to design, reimagining a built environment that's at one rather than at odds with nature. Hello, my name is Ella Saltmarsh and all of my work is about ensuring that we have a long and flourishing future on this planet. When I say we, I'm talking about all life on Earth. And the way I do that is generally through working with narrative and culture. So I've set up different organizations, programs, uh, initiatives that do that. And particularly I'm here at Cloisters um, with a project I have called the Long Time Project, which is all about how we can become good ancestors. Okay, before we hear more about that, it's quite a specific and unique job spec. Is that what you've always been interested in or what made you so inspired by this that you wanted to essentially dedicate your life to it, which it feels that you do do? Yeah, I've, I've always been passionate about social justice and I've been passionate about the environment. I grew up on a farm, so I grew up on a small sheep farm. Um, we didn't have a TV and so books were my world. And so I think I grew up immersed in nature and story and that has informed my trajectory. That's so interesting, um, nature and story. I was going to come to this later, but I noticed on your bio, it says that you are really interested in the place where fiction and the future collide you might not have used that word. Could you explain that? Because we heard a little bit about that earlier here at the forum, how important fiction can be in imagining futures. Yeah. So stories are amazing vehicles for emotions and emotions are what move us. So the word emotion comes from the Greek muvare, to move. So, you know, we are very irrational, messy creatures. We are led by our emotions. Stories are vehicles for emotions. So if we want to move people, we need to work with story. There's just the kind of that as a basic premise. And then when we're thinking about futures, um, it is so important that we find ways to imagine different kinds of futures. I think we are fed apocalypse. So we are used to imagining dystopias. We're used to imagining business as usual. What we're not used to doing is having spaces to think about futures where all life does get to thrive. And I can feel, as I say that, I can almost feel people think, well, that's so utopian. There's no way there's a future where all life can thrive because we're just not used to seeing it. So there's a growing body of work in this area. So there's a load of work around imagination infrastructure, around collective imagination that's about trying to bring these tools of imagination back to all of us because all of us can do this. This field of imagining futures isn't and shouldn't be confined to kind of small elites, but instead something we can all do so that we can have a role in building the futures that we want. When you say you get pushback or people tend to imagine dystopian futures, you've used we a lot in that. Who is this we? Is this across cultures or are there cultures who are able to imagine these futures that you hope maybe us in the West can't imagine? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So there's lots of places we can look to for different ways of thinking and doing the future. So um, there is a great podcast, the Afrofuturist podcast. Um, and off the back of that, they have developed something called Afro Rhythms for the Future, which is a kind of game um, to help you imagine different futures. Um, there is Indigenous Futurism, which is a really amazing field. If we look to Indigenous cultures, cultures, there's loads of different ways that they engage with the future uh, that are much, much more positive. And I guess part of this is understanding the ways that different cultures connect the past, present and future. Because we do it in a particular way in Western capitalist culture, but there are so many other ways of doing it and other ways of doing time. And part of the process of colonization was kind of colonizing time, colonizing the way that the past and the future were seen and done. And so I think part of this process of decolonization is understanding what we've done and how we've done that, but then also being able to look at these different ways of doing time, these different ways of doing the future that are so much more life supporting and that we have so much to learn from. Why do you think with all of that, you're here at a conference on the built environment? Well, a lot of my work is about what it means to be a good ancestor. What does it mean to be a steward? What does it mean to care for future generations? Um, and the built environment is a space that is all about the future. It is all about things that will probably be here after we have gone. And so it is the perfect and most like a really important place to think about what it means to be a good ancestor. What are we leaving? What are the physical legacies that we are leaving? And then I think the other side of it is that our spaces, our built environment creates our world. It's a kind of iterative process between culture and built environment. And so what are the built environments that will encourage us to world build in these regenerative ways? So it's not just about making sure your materials are regenerative. It is about the kinds of buildings and communities that we're creating that will enable us to build regenerative societies. So how do you practically go about doing that? I mean, one way I think is what you did here last night. We had this high intensity workout that you put us all through. Obviously, listeners won't have been through that. Perhaps you could explain that and what the purpose of, of that is. And if that more widely explains what you do with groups of people, big and small and all across the world. Yeah, so so lots of our work at the Long Time Project is about helping individuals and institutions become good ancestors. And there's lots of different elements to that. So being a good ancestor is almost like a muscle. And it's a muscle that we need to exercise in lots of different ways. And so one of the things that we've developed are these different pathways to being a good ancestor. And so last night, it was the first time I've ever done that. I invented this um, HIIT workout that isn't uh, a normal HIIT workout, but was a high intensity time workout. And to be honest, I wasn't sure if it was a really naff idea or not, but it seemed to work okay. Um, and so what we did was we took our different pathways um, and we created three circuits out of them. And so the first circuit was about intergenerational empathy. And so that was about ways we can cultivate care for future generations. The second circuit was about deep time. 
And so that was about really understanding our place in the 4.6 billion year history of this planet and also in the deep future. And a lot of the work that I was talking about yesterday was really about how we can, to coin Brian Eno's phrase, become re-enchanted by the improbability of life on earth. So the more work I do around deep time, the more I am bowled over by how extraordinarily improbable life on earth is. And for me, that realization gives this sense of awe, which lights a big fire in my belly to step up to protect our home. And then the third um, circuit that we did uh, was a circuit about cathedral thinking. And so that was really about what does it mean to be involved in projects, in work that is bigger than our lifetime? What does it mean to be part of these intergenerational lineages of change? And, And what does that open up? So they were just three pathways. There are others that we use. So we do work around death and mortality awareness. Um, We do work around interconnectedness uh, and the more than human world. So yeah, last night was a kind of sample of some of the ways that you can exercise your good ancestor muscle. And one of the ways you helped us to do that was through these fascinating figures for someone like me. I, I really just haven't thought in those sorts of numbers. T- t- tell us about those extraordinary figures that basically talk about how many people are living and how insignificant in its sense that feels or how small compared to those who have lived and are yet to live. Absolutely. Well, I'll give you the figures and then I might describe them visually because numbers can be quite, big numbers can be quite hard Absolutely. to absorb. So um, at the moment, there are 7.7 billion of us living on this planet. Um, And if we think of that in terms of a dot, that looks like a pretty small green dot. If we think of the number of humans who have lived over the past 50,000 years, we've got 100 billion. So that would look like a dot that was quite a bit bigger. Uh, than than all of us currently alive. Then if we think of all the potential lives that could be born over the next 50,000 years, the number is 6.75 trillion. Now that is like the most giant orange sun uh, compared to the other two. And that's just human life. So imagine how enormous that circle would be if we were talking about all species on earth. And essentially, like what those figures show us is the awesome and disproportionate amount of responsibility that those of us alive right now have for all future life on earth, have around what the quality of those lives will be and ultimately whether they will exist at all. And so that's why it's so important in this moment that we do cultivate our ability to be good ancestors because that is the scale of responsibility that lies in our hands. And I just want to kind of make a reference. So those figures come from um, Roman Krasnarik's book about being a good ancestor. So... We need to be good ancestors. We're not very good ancestors in the West, in you know, Western capitalised society. In the room last night, uh, and in most of the rooms, I imagine you are invited to speak, are a lot of people on the edge of their seats with eagerness and awareness. And f- for even them, it's quite hard to take on board what you're saying and go away and practice it. I imagine that mentality. 
it's such a huge change in thinking, isn't it? This idea of empathising with future generations. And you're doing amazing work, but how do you also preach to the non-converted and just really get this into the mindset? Well, it's funny because on the one hand, it can feel like a new idea. It is a very ancient idea. But actually, one of the things that I've found when I go out and talk to people across the world is that most people want to take care of the living things they love, regardless of who they vote for, of how they feel about particular issues. They want the people and animals and places they love to be okay. And so actually it is tapping into something that doesn't feel foreign to people, that feels quite familiar, that is an instinct to care, that I think is something to be cultivated and amplified. I mean, that was why it was so fascinating in your example last night, which I'm sure extends to what you do. You asked us to imagine a young child that we know in 40 years and then in 90 years. And you felt such a huge amount of care that they were living in a world you wanted them to live in all that time away when you know that you're not going to be around. And it's, it's fascinating. Can I come back to this idea of which cultures can, can do this and which can't? Because we've, we've talked about Western societies, but I, I'm led to believe, and I think the former head of the British Museum said that actually it's a very British thing not to be able to interrogate our past and use it to look to the future. You know, Germans are very good at it, apparently. They, they're very good at grappling with the past and using it to help going forward. Do you find that? I mean, you're based in London. Do you think we have a real issue with that in Britain and in perhaps other countries? Well, I mean, I think colonialism has yeah. left its mark in many ways. And I think uh, there has been a, a lot of willful neglect of the past because of the uncomfortable truths it will hold. So there is definitely a, a reckoning to be done with our colonial past that is ongoing and really, really important work. And in terms of the work we're talking about around building the future, I always think that this work is really Janus face. So in order to build the future, we do have to look back because one of the things that I find it's really useful to understand is where do the current systems that are limiting our ability to be good ancestors, that are destroying our futures, where did they come from? And the more we can understand where they come from, how they were human made, how they were a product of a particular time, a particular worldview, the more we feel like we have agency to build the different systems. And if we don't do this interrogation, then it can often feel like the systems that we live in are almost invisible to us and they feel like they've been dropped from the heavens. They've been there forever. Of course, things can't be different. And, and it's so helpful to look back and be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like this system, this agricultural system or this economic system or this political system, this was how it was born. This was how it developed. And if we want to create different ones, we can. It's so interesting. I think the word systems needs to be interrogated because actually... I think of systems as being quite entrenched and I'm always questioning people about how we can change systems thinking. But, you know, maybe that word does come with this idea that it's so deeply entrenched and it's incredibly hard to get out of it and we should stop thinking like that. Yeah, I think that's such a great point, Hannah. I think I think the language of systems probably isn't helpful. It is helpful and it is about things that are connected and it is really important that when we're making change happen, we are thinking about the connections between the things that we're doing. 
but systems, yeah, you're right. Like a system feels um, quite impenetrable. Uh, it feels like something that is like, well, how would you change a system? Uh, so yeah, on the spot, I haven't got the new language, but I think it's a really great challenge. It's really interesting to think about. Um, in terms of sort of practical things that you do, I was really taken by this idea of the empty chair that you were encouraging. For example, if people are listening, um, are working with organisations and thinking, how can we encourage people within our organisation to think of future generations? That was one of the examples you used. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can have an empty chair to represent future generations in any meetings that you're having. Um, and you can refer any decisions that you're making to that chair. You can think about how it will impact future generations. It's a really simple thing that you can do tomorrow. There are lots of other things you can do. So we created something with uh, over 100 policymakers from around the world who co-created the long time tools for us with us. Um, and so that is something that is freely available. You can find it and use those tools in your organizations that are both about uh, shifting culture and shifting operations to be more long term. And what about people who are listening who are not working in an organization? They might be freelance, they might be in an organization, but not able to put sort of these sorts of things in place, not be in a position of authority. How can they take on these ideas into their daily lives? I mean, there's loads of different ways. Like, like I said, listen to your podcast. <laughs> of course, sorry, plug. <laughs> listen to the Longtime Academy podcast uh, and do our practices uh, for sure. Um, and as I said earlier, it's like a muscle. So there are lots of different things you can do. You can cultivate your ability to care across generations. You can do a good ancestor audit on yourself. You can look at where am I already being a good ancestor? Map that out. You can look at where is it hard for you to be a good ancestor? What's stopping you from being a good ancestor? What are some of the barriers that are getting in your way? What, do, what does being a good ancestor mean to you? Because that answer will be different for all of us. And then once you've done that kind of audit, you can start to look at, okay, so what do I want to change? Where, where do I want to amplify the ways I'm already a good ancestor? Where do I want to try and address the things that are stopping me from being a good ancestor? And there's lots of resources out there to support you on your journey. That's really interesting. And, and your podcast is genuinely a, a very good place to start, as you say, because you have exercises that listeners do. Yeah, absolutely. So in the podcast, we really wanted listeners to feel the ideas they were hearing about. You know, as we talked at the beginning of our conversation, emotion and feeling is really important. I don't know about you, but I listen to a lot of podcasts. And at the time I'm listening to them, I'm like, this is the best idea in the world. And then half an hour later, I cannot remember it. And so one of the things that we try and do with the podcast is yeah, find ways of creating experiences for listeners to help them feel the ideas so that they can live in them. And so to do that, um, separate to the podcast, there are these 15 to 20 minute uh, exercises you can do. They're kind of like meditations. Some of them are things that we've done, but we've also collaborated with people. So there is a death doula doing a death meditation, the deep time walk, do this beautiful deep time meditation, the Afrofuturist podcast, do uh, an Afro rhythms meditation. So there's lots of, there's lots of kind of variety there. Basically the, the essence is transportative, is it? Just sort of takes you places that you... Yeah, it, it definitely takes you places and I hope it enables you to feel some different feelings. 
So just to end off, um, I mean, I actually feel, normally I say just to end off, let's have something positive. But actually, I feel this is a very upbeat and positive conversation altogether. But we're all here. I'm here for the second year in a row. There are a lot of people here. There is a lot of goodwill. But do you feel that in what you're doing, it is getting out, the word is getting out? We've talked about some really great examples in Wales, for example. Just perhaps you could leave us with these examples of where the understanding of the importance of engaging with future generations is being seen and put into place like at policy level. Yeah, there, there's loads happening around the world. Uh, there are growing movements across sectors. There are growing movements across sectors that are about being a good ancestor. And so if we look at politics, uh, we see things like the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act in Wales, where for the first time anywhere in the world, uh, all public bodies have to take future generations into account in their planning. I mean, this is literally groundbreaking work. Um, We're seeing it happening uh, with the law where, you know, after many years of young people taking governments and businesses to courts. Courts are finally really starting to legislate in their favour. And there are some incredible legal precedents being set. We're seeing it happening in economics, whether that's with ideas like donut economics, or through things like the good ancestor movement um, within finance. So there is a growing movement happening across sectors. And I think we are starting to see this culture of stewardship growing at scale. And we just urgently need to amplify that work. And there is a kind of, um, uh, there's a paradox to this in that this work is so incredibly urgent. Uh, You know, we talked about the scale of human and more than human life that, that we hold in our hands right now. And the mindset of urgency that created this problem isn't necessarily uh, the mindset that is going to get us out of it. And so by understanding how to be a good ancestor, we can start to do this work from a different mindset. And so steward is a word you use a lot. That feels like a really good word. To you, what does that encapsulate? For me, being a steward is about taking care. Um, I th- honestly think that is where we're going to end off. It's so wonderful to talk to you. And I think uh, really looking forward to myself to going to listen to this podcast genuinely. And I don't, I don't feel like I ha- actually like you ha- do have enough time to listen to podcasts. I'm definitely going to prioritise this. And please come back when you've written your book. <laughs> Thank you so much. Great. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to In Line With Nature, brought to you by the Closters Forum. Hosted by me, Hannah McInnes, produced by Claire Heaton, and supported by the wonderful team at the Closters Forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts, suggestions, or any questions you might have about the episode. Just send your email to podcast at theclostersforum.com and make sure to tune in for our next instalment.